This is the Kratom Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. My guest is Dr. Kirsten Smith. Her PhD is in social work, and she's currently doing postdoctoral work at National Institute on Drug Abuse. She's worked with communities with substance use disorder and was instrumental in introducing Kratom Research to NIDA's Intramural Research Program. Thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it, and I've been looking at your research and reading it. And we actually do a segment of the podcast called uh, the Journal Club. With I do it with uh, Dr. John Cachet. We looked at the uh, non-prescribed buprenorphine use mediates the relationship between uh, heroin and kratom study. I actually listened to that on the way home from work last Friday. Awesome. Not the whole, not the whole thing. And I'm going to scold you on something, but I'll wait till the end. After we, it's a <laughs> I was talking to my car or to my stereo as I was listening to it. It actually has nothing to do with Kratom. It was about Appalachia. <laughs> it's like, because, um, because by the way, I'm, so I'm from Tennessee and then I lived in Kentucky yeah. for several years doing my um, graduate work. And um, so even, so I grew up technically in Appalachia and, and, but in a college town in Knoxville. So it was like not rural. And then um, in Kentucky, like there's the Appalachian portion of Kentucky and Eastern Kentucky. And then everything, even Lexington's technically not in Appalachia, which, you know, so long story okay. short, half of the people were from Appalachia and then others were not. Yeah. But, but, but I'll just say if you go down there and tell, tell someone that they're in or not in Appalachia, you'll get a strong reaction depending on if you get it right or not. So it has yeah. nothing to do with Kratom. <laughs> but I, I enjoyed listening to the, um, to, to you guys, um, you know, going back and forth. It was, it was nice. But uh, like, let me just, I'll just start at the beginning here. So you work at National Institutes uh, for on Drug Abuse. Uh, it's the Inter- Intramural Research Program in Baltimore. So uh, can you tell the listeners a little bit about uh, that program and what you do there? Yeah, um, that's a good question. And so I should say, <laughs> um, so it's really wonky and a lot, and I apologize, but a lot of things are wonky in science and especially and explaining how NIDA sometimes works or in the National Institutes of Health. So I'm actually what's called a fellow. It, there's a fancy title, it's postdoc, a postdoctoral training award fellow. And so what that means is that I'm not an actual government employee, but what we do is, um, you know, once you get a PhD or even we have um, for bachelor's um, graduates who come and do like a postdoc, I'm what's called a postdoc doing my postdoc. So it's kind of like a rotation. Um, so, you know, after you get a PhD, you go to a certain place and do a postdoc for any, anywhere from one to, you know, five years or more. And at NIDA, the typical postdoc um, rotation is three to five years. So what I'm, what I'm doing is kind of being a visitor at NIDA to get really good training before I go on to a university. So I've been at uh, NIDA's intramural research program for two years this August, and I'll be staying probably about two more years before going to a university to continue the work that I'm doing now. And so oh, I think something that's helpful for people to understand because even 
it's just weird. So there's what's, um, NIDA does a lot of um, funding that's extramural. So people apply for grants uh, at universities and then NIDA decides, okay, what is scientifically worthy? And they send that money out to universities. And so the intramural program is actually really cool um, because we get to kind of play <laughs> with our toys in-house instead of having to, um, you know, send money out to universities. So we're actually allowed... Um, and I shouldn't say we, because I am, again, a postdoc, so I'm not a principal investigator. Uh, even though I am a scientist and a researcher, I'm kind of still under my mentor, Dr. David Epstein. Um, and so um, we, David, you know, all of the principal investigators get to set um, agendas that are in keeping with NIDA's broader strategic mission and, um, and design some really, really cutting edge work that is really hard to do and um, you know, or hard to get necessarily funding or approval for at other places. So I'm really proud to, to be at NIDA IRP. And the group that I work with is the Real World Assessment Prediction and Treatment Unit. And um, we're a small lab and we do a lot of um, work in the field, um, like ambulatory assessments. It's called Ecological Momentary Assessment. And I, I'll actually talk about that later, maybe because um, one of our upcoming Kratom studies is going to be using that. And I know it sounds like a mouthful and it's like really fancy sounding, but it's pretty simple when you um, explain it. It might actually be easier if I tell you how um, I kind of brought Kratom to NIDA because there's kind of a story. There's kind of this like my Kratom journey has been a weird one, as I'm sure many people's Kratom journeys are. Yeah. Um, would you like me to talk about that? Please. Um, yeah, yeah. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. I mean, because I, you know, to be honest, I did not, um, when I first encountered someone using Kratom uh, in a clinical setting, when I was doing basically what's called like an internship or a rotation in a, um, a substance abuse treatment facility in Kentucky. And it was the first time I heard about Kratom was actually in like 2006. 15 or six, maybe 15, it was 2015. And a client was using it. And I, this was when the synthetics were really taking off. And I was like, is this like the crocodile thing? Is this, this is not a cathinone or a cannabinoid? <laughs> what are you, you know, I was like, what? I basically was like, what on earth is this? Although I used uh, stronger languages than that. But, um, <laughs> and, and really it was, um, I, I tell the story because it's, it stuck with me for two reasons. One, the client reported, um, you know, that he, you know, he had, of course, you know, prescription opioid dependence and substance use disorder. And he was taking it. He was like, it's a tea from Vietnam. And I'm like, okay, what, what is that? And he, so he was like, not entirely sure what he was even taking, which I think is a huge part of the creative story more broadly. Yeah. And, um, and he described, you know, not feeling like he was really high but that his opioid craving was, you know, diminished and his anxiety was decreased and that, you know, he, and I'm like, so it doesn't get you high. And he's like, I mean, I don't think so. And I'm like, I kind of was like, okay, well, who cares? I kind of just didn't even realize the significance of what he said until I met more and more people. And um, the reason I remember him, and, and this is not the first time I've told this um, you know, story because I, I will talk about it when I give talks sometimes you know, he ended up getting discharged from the program along with another client who's using it because there were no drug tests. People didn't understand what it was. And we, you know, we still are very, I'm still very humble. Um, we all are humble and learning 
continually um, about this plant, which is very complex. And, you know, he got discharged because it was an abstinence only program and tried to do some 12 step stuff and then ended up using heroin because it was right when heroin was beginning to proliferate in areas that it, it was not previously really widespread. And then he ended up dying of a heroin overdose um, after just trying to be purely abstinent. Um, you know, this, this, the entity, you know, that shall remain nameless, um, you know, did not believe in like buprenorphine or Kratom or anything that was an abstinence. So, you know, knowing that the first person I knew that used Kratom ended up dying because of a really not great treatment system that he had access to just kept it in the back of my mind. And I couldn't, you know, so I kept increasingly hearing about it, um, like at the like street level. Right. So I kind of likened myself as like a gonzo researcher, which is <laughs> maybe not something that I should brag about, but you know, I, I really do try to stay, um, attuned to like what real people in real world settings are doing and not just like be in some ivory tower. So it's been by virtue of that, that I've been able to keep up with, you know, how are people using Kratom? And so the initial exposure in that way um, actually led to that 2017 survey that you had highlighted um, in your journal club. That was the second paper that, there was only two papers that came out of it related to Kratom. Mm -hmm. And that was the second one. So it was, early on that I started to care about it and I kept thinking, all right, well, that's great. Kratom's wonderful, but I mean, not wonderful as in I'm endorsing or, or anything, but as in it's an yeah. interesting research subject, I should say that. Um, so Kratom's this very interesting thing, but I don't have time for it. I have this other career geared at more like social science stuff, but I kept like, no, you can't, once you kind of are intrigued by it, you can't, stop and i think in terms of researching um or wanting to research it because it's so complex on every level and we know so little still Hmm. that and there's just so much work to be done that people like myself and oliver grunman is another example you know we kind of did not anticipate that our lives would be and our careers would be so centered on kratom but you know, once you, you know, once you kind of go down this road is really compelling, really interesting stuff. And so um, I came to NIDA and told, you know, Dr. David Epstein, my mentor, who is a very, very smart, very well-respected scientist. And he had no idea what Kratom was. And I explained it and talked about, you know, it's a partial biased, seemingly biased agonist. And that's a whole other that's a whole another loaded kind of thing, the term biased in terms of science. There's like a debate about if it's a thing or if it's not a thing. But I explained the pharmacology the best we understand it. And he's like completely flabbergasted. And he's like, and you can buy it at a gas station? I'm like, yes, and you can buy it at a gas station. And so now he is intrigued by it. And I, I, um, I've i kind of indoctrinated him into the Kratom <laughs> cult, like research cult, that is. And yeah. um and he'll be the first one to admit admit that. So um, we've done a lot of surveys uh, recently and some social media text analyses, and we are gearing up. We're u- going to be using that formative data uh, to inform what will be a really nice departure from, and I shouldn't say departure, the survey work needs to continue, um, but we're going to be doing some more rigorous 
studies in, in the um, coming months. And so I can, I'm, I'm happy to talk about some of the work we've done so far and where we're going, but I, I leave that to you. Can I just ask a little bit about your background? Do you yeah. mind? So, oh, you, I'm an urban, unless, well, unless I'm, I'm not, I mean, yeah, I'm, yes. Okay. I, I know what I can and can, shouldn't, should not pivot to. So um, by all means. Okay, so on your um, Twitter bio, it says you're a former heroin user, and um, it, there was also a study that uh, you, you recently did, uh, or it might have been um, a letter, I just saw the uh, abstract, but it was about uh, potential value of the insights and lived experiences of addiction researcher, researchers with addiction. Um, uh, and, and two quotes I want to read is those... Those with research expertise and addiction rarely speak freely about these overlapping perspectives, and um, you wanted to explore the possibility that their expertise may help advance addiction science while helping to reduce um, stigma. So why did you choose to put that out there publicly about yourself on your Twitter bio about uh, being a former heroin user? Yeah, I think, so I actually wondered if that would come up just because it recently there's been a lot of hubbub on twitter um with myself and my co-authors and when i say hubbub i mean in a good way Mm -hmm. um we the commentary that you noted just now we actually had a scientific meeting um called the college on problems of drug dependence which is it's a big scientific annual conference so to speak and it's been going on for like 80 years it's a big deal and so we had a a forum actually at that conference with a few other people who weren't in the commentary, including the people in the commentary. So it was an, a nice, well-rounded discussion and it it generated a lot of buzz as well. And so I'm uh, frankly still reeling a little bit from, from the commentary being published and from that even more direct verbal, you know, forum disclosure. And to answer your question, the reason that I decided to do that is because you know, it's something that I have to dance around and not necessarily around people who I work with um, directly, but in terms of people I don't know as well, um, you know, it's something that could come up, but there's this balancing act. And I even said this during the forum of, you know, I don't want to disclose my past um, of my past, like, and it was more than just hair. I mean, I used other substances. This is not like a secret at this point. <laughs> it's not a secret. Um, even though heroin and prescription opioids were my um, preferred drugs, you know, it's it's this kind of balancing act of not wanting to be weird and just going around and telling everyone, hi, by the way, my name is Kirsten and I used to inject heroin. Uh, (laughs) That's not what I want to put on my CV and lead with, right? And the other, you know, the the problem is that in clinical settings like peer-led recovery or things like that, my past could be an asset, but in academia or research, it could be considered a liability. Well, I think the zeitgeist, you know, currently of diversity and inclusion made the moment, made the timing right. Mm-hmm. Um, and also my mentor, Dr. Dr. Epstein is, is very supportive of, you know, well, I mean, data from, or information from whatever source you can get it. So, you know, while you can't take your, you know, I couldn't take my past experience and say, build a theory 
around it, but I could falsify certain claims based on knowing what I know or have seen what I've seen. And likewise with preclinical work, such as animal models, you know, preclinical researchers with an addiction history have the capacity to also, you know, improve how we go about making those animal models. Um, you know, and, and even talking about things like craving or drug-related cues, there's a lot of jargon that's that's still debated, um, you know, amongst researchers about what are we measuring and how are we measuring it. So mm -hmm. I think from a scientific perspective, there is value in people like myself disclosing. And I have to say that I have heard from many people since that paper and forum uh, recently, and, you know, we're not... <laughs> you know, we're a minority, but there's a, there's a lot more of us than, than I, you know, might think. So I, um, I think like the paper said, the other part was, was just to kind of help diminish the stigma, right? We have millions of people in the United States with a history of opioid use disorder. And that's just, those are just opioids. So, you know, to think that we're not going to have people with substance use disorders in professional, um, you know, positions and, in scientific positions is is just improbable given the sheer number of people who've had a substance use disorder history. So long story short, I just, I think that the moment had finally come to be more public and advocacy oriented. And I have to say that um, NIDA has been extremely supportive um, at you know, multiple levels, which is extremely gratifying and encouraging um, in and of itself, so. Seeing a couple like you yourself and uh, Carl Hart uh, is another one uh, just come out and say that I, you know, used to use drugs uh, is, pro is probably a pretty positive thing. Um, is that what made you want to get into social work in the first place? Yeah, actually. Mm -hmm. um, so to your I'll actually to your first point, say one thing that I think is worth noting for your audience, which is that there is a movement whether it's psychedelic researchers or psychonauts who you know document a lot of their use or people who use in moderation but have controlled use i think that there is going to continue to be this kind of growing push towards transparency and openness given the war on drugs and you know given the fact that you can only i don't know you can only hide your personal life so much i think there is going to be a trend away from um like hiding in the closet, so to speak, yeah. and being like what Carl or Carl Hurt um, disclosed, which is pretty um, remarkable. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. So, as far as my background, I, 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 really intentionally was just going to quote unquote help people. I finally stopped, you know, using kind of you know got my act together with a lot of support from my family and great people and. Um, I didn't really know what I was going to do. I never thought I would actually end up in research. I, I just submitted a grant and in the grant application, I'm like, yeah, I, this is a very weird path I stumbled onto because I never thought I'd be on it. But what happened was I, you know, I wanted to help other people who had experienced substance use disorders. And then working in a, in a treatment setting, I realized how broken the systems of care are, which is one reason why I, I when people talk about using Kratom because they are having issues with healthcare and whether that's substance abuse treatment or chronic pain treatment, um, you know, I've seen that firsthand. So knowing that the systems, so to speak, and when I say systems, I, I mean like medical systems mainly and system, systems of care 
um, don't work for everyone or are not equitably accessible to everyone. Uh, I was like, you know, this is like putting band-aids on gunshot wounds. I need to figure out how the gun works and go another level further. And so that's when I decided to get a PhD and shift from um, any sort of clinical practice to, to, to research. And then even from social science, I'm doing a harder pivot um, to like behavioral pharmacology and more quote unquote hard science work in the coming years, um, simply because that's where the creative research needs to go is to control laboratories work. And I'm actually mm. currently the lead investigator on a double randomized placebo controlled clinical trial for a biased opioid agonist that's in some ways kind of similar to freedom. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, it's been a strange journey to get here. You touched on it a little bit about um, like healthcare access. It, people in Kentucky, they're in uh, e- inpatient um, rehabilitation programs uh, that you um, surveyed. And this was uh, 2017, right, where those two studies came out of. There was a lot, there was a lot of uh, discussion about how there's a lack of access to medicated-assisted treatment programs in Kentucky, and especially in the Department of Corrections. I think they, there's none in there. How much is, a, is it a factor of, like, not having access to health care um, in that sample size or in general um, that people seek out maybe illicit drugs or um, diverted buprenorphine where they it's a prescribed drug but they obtain it illicitly or um, even kratom um, how much is like a lack of health care um, a factor in, in which uh, drugs that they choose so it's kind of mixed so based on my experience and research um, and and it's we don't have a one-to-one, you know, we, we don't have any sort of self-report that explicitly states, well, because I because of my, um, you know, treatment options, you know, I'm using Kratom. Now we do, like, we're, we've collected data recently that speak to this. Um, both Reddit data were examined and then also survey data that we've done at NIDA. And th- there's a couple of layers to this. So there's earlier work, which is mixed in when I say my work, but also Oliver Grunman's work and some other survey work, which again, there's only so much in the United States. We know we have a lot more work from Asia, um, you know, that there are people with access to healthcare that are using Kratom for, you know, supplementing their medical care, right? So some people have great healthcare, great insurance, but are still using Kratom um, to, to, you know, so, you know, substitute or supplement their prescription opioid regimen, which is licitly prescribed, like they're getting a prescription, but they don't necessarily like them um, or they don't want to use as many pills. And so they'd rather take Kratom. So that's a sub portion of people um, that we can say, at least those people are using Kratom to self-treat certain things like chronic pain or, um, you know, even, you know, anxiety and depression and things like that. Um, and, and they still have health insurance. For some people, um, it's it's they don't have health insurance, or again, we don't have enough data to make a solid, you know, unequivocal claim here. So that's not what I'm doing. But just there are people who kind of fall through the cracks, so to speak. So they may have health care um, access or health insurance, but because the systems are are burdened, and because there is, as you noted. Um, 
a lot of limitations in buprenorphine prescribing. So buprenorphine is kind of like the life-saving um, opioid agonist therapy apart from methadone. And some people can't get, you know, can't get access to that or the stigma of doing it is, is such that they don't want to. And it yeah. would be you know, better for them just in their minds. And this, again, is what we're seeing with some of the Reddit data um, to just go ahead and use Kratom instead. One of the things that, you know, is, is problematic is that substance use disorder treatment is very heterogeneous. I should say there's heterogeneity in the sense that you could walk into 12 different doors to 12, 12 different treatment centers in America and get 12 different interventions, some of which are scientifically informed and evidence-based, some of which are less so, uh, some of which might be predatory. If you have cancer, you can pretty much find an oncologist who's going to mostly say, yes, you have cancer, and this is what cancer you have, and here's how we're going to treat it. And there's going to be a lot less room for um, you know, difference in, in terms of care. And that's not the case with substance use uh, disorder. So I think that while I can't say that the earlier data directly um, imply that having insurance or not having insurance is related to Kratom use, I think the one thing that is clear is that people are using Kratom. I mean, this is the data are very clear on this. They are using Kratom to self-treat many, many conditions, as I'm sure you and your listeners know. Um, so it's a matter of, you know, wh- you know, why, why, why use this to self-treat as opposed to something else? And that's what we're still in the process of trying to find out, um, you know, and I'll, I'll say at least in some of our preliminary analyses for some um, survey data that were recently collected, you know, we do ask people like, do you want to disclose your Kratom use to a healthcare provider? Were you getting adequate treatment for your pain? Were you getting adequate treatment for your opioid use disorder? or anxiety or et cetera. So even though it's not out yet, we will be putting out a paper that is an IDA funded project that will directly answer your question. So it's just a matter of, of me getting it. Me, I, I will say this, there are going to be many papers coming out in the next couple of months. Um, and this is from the 2019 uh, study, which is the second one that came out. Yeah. Um, so it was like 10.2% uh, of the whole sample reported uh past year Kratom use, which I think it was like 49 people. Um, uh, one of his questions were, uh, why wasn't uh, fentanyl one of the substances examined in the study? Yeah, so this is a great question. So when that study was, it was my first little survey study, when that was developed in 2016, fentanyl had not yet become a household name, okay. which it sadly is at this point. So I, I wish fentanyl had been on that. It's been added to our current surveys that we're doing. Um, and I know Oliver's added it to some of his as well. So it's just the timing of it. Fentanyl took off, you know, basically as, as those data were being collected. But yeah, I wish I had uh-huh. fentanyl on there as its own line item. The problem with that is, is a lot of people, once fentanyl was starting to be used, and this is a problem we still are encountering in terms of self-report work is that a lot of times people don't know if they're using fentanyl. So it's it's hard to measure whether they've used it. So what we do now is ask heroin and then fentanyl separately 
Um, and then even sometimes, like, do you, do you know if you used fentanyl? Um, because uh, sadly, at this point, heroin and fentanyl are often interchangeable. 85% of the um, the people surveyed had been incarcerated and 25% were currently incarcerated. Is there is there a ish, an issue with they might be uh, too afraid to answer the survey questions honestly? So this is oh I'm so glad you asked me this because this is one of the things that that um I I did when I when I listened to the um that podcast um, I did want to, I'm glad you're giving me the opportunity to clarify. So first, I think it should stay past your incarceration. Um, so no one, some people, and I'm sadly don't have the paper in front of me. Um, a lot of people in that sample would have been on probation. I mean, it was mostly people on probation or parole. The settings that they were in were technically Department of Corrections settings, um, but they were not in jail at that point, although the vast majority had at least you know been incarcerated at one point. So um, to answer your question directly, having worked with the University of Kentucky, this is something I, I did for several years actually, was um, do research for someone else um, with people who were incarcerated, who had just been released from being incarcerated or who were on probation or parole. And so this is a population that I know really, really well. And, um, you know, it's some of the first creative using people were also part of this population. Yeah. And, and I think um, to answer your question for this survey and for a lot of other surveys, you would be surprised to know how honest most people are um, about self-report. So we have things in research. There's all these different biases that can come in um, and those can include, you know, obviously, you know, not being truthful because you don't want to be in trouble. But oftentimes it's, it's more like social desirability bias is what we call it. So people, um, if they're answering a survey, might not want to say that they do X or Y because they, you know, don't, they don't want the person asking to think less of them. The good thing about that survey that I conducted is that it was entirely anonymous and the informed consent preamble made it very clear that, you know, their data would not be used even if we wanted to link them to their data we couldn't there was literally no way of of doing it so sometimes there's like a personal identifier or a unique participant id number even with this study there's no such thing so there was and people didn't have to take it so it was a voluntary survey and i i feel pretty confident in two things one the academic literature does support that substance using people and people who are involved with the criminal justice system don't necessarily have any lower rate of responding truthfully. And there's there are ways to kind of validate and verify if that's true or not, like using urine drug screens um, or even these like validity checks within the same document. So there's that part of it. The other part of it is just where I pride myself, at least with that study on being you know a good researcher and and very transparent. So one thing that I continue to do at NIDA is something that I did there, which is A, tell people exactly what they're consenting to do. And B, uh, when I, (laughs) you noted it was, these were administered in like a large kind of cafeteria setting, getting up with, I'm covered in tattoos, by the way, and speaking directly (laughs) to people like on their level and saying, listen, Uh you know, here's the actual deal. And um, we can also give 
certificates of confidentiality and, and basically give people enough confidence um, to know that we are not going to um, be engaging in what's called research misconduct. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I feel that most people who do any sort of survey or participate in anything that I've done before NIDA or at NIDA, um, they know what they're getting into and they have autonomy to decide for themselves if they want to participate. So, And the other thing he was talking about was, it was in the conclusion, but it said uh, the inability to readily access Kratom due, a pro- due to prohibition prohibitions may increase willingness to seek professional OUD treatment. Um, He had a problem with that, but then the rest of it said, yet as the high rates of blah, blah, blah indicate that people using uh, they may may, may procure harm reduction medications illicitly and independently of formal medical channels. So he was wondering why you would, you know, the the conclusion would bring that up as a possibility of of Kratom prohibition actually helping people, or was that just to kind of set up the the rest of the argument? What was my exact sentence, by the way? What did I even say? Okay, here, I'll I'll just read it. The inability to readily access Kratom due to prohibitions may increase willingness to seek professional OUD treatment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I remember what I said. So, I mean, it's that's essentially one possibility. I don't know that it's a likely possibility, but it is it is true that and many people would 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 say, well, if you can't get this, you know, and you need to have a you know, another kind of opioid substitution or treatment or whatever, then maybe you will, you will go and, and sign up for, you know, buprenorphine treatment if you can access it. Well, if that were the case, they might've already done that. So, I mean, it's kind of like a, you need to, you need to talk about all possibilities. We don't, we don't know what that counterfactual world would be for a given person. And, it could be that for some, they might do that. Mm. It could be that for some, they might go back to heroin. It could be for some that they s- just stop doing everything and start doing yoga. I mean, yeah. there are like <laughs> infinite possibilities of what could happen. But in terms of talking about creative, especially early on, um, and, you know, in, in going through a peer review process, you know, it is important to say, you know, what the, the implications of prohibition might have been or might be. And I still think that that's something that I'm not a policy person. I don't necessarily want to talk about policy, but it is um, something that is considered generally if, if, you know, if Kratom was to be prohibited, what would people do? And I think that there's been enough publicly stated information from regular users at this point um, about how, how bad it would be in, at least I can speak to COVID-19 findings, <clears throat> some of which will be coming out soon, um, just about you know what do people do who use Kratom regularly if their supply is cut off, not necessarily due to prohibition, but due to a, a global pandemic. Um, and, it's, and it's a mixed story. So to, to answer your direct question, as far as why I put that there is, because I mean, I think it's important to talk about um, you know, what is possible, you know, on both, both sides. And, and mm-hmm. the answer to that is we don't know. I mean, yeah. and that it would, 
and it would vary by person. I get, that's the one thing I will say is it will vary by person. I, this is something I talked about with Krunman, and I was actually tra- just recently, I interviewed him last year, and I was just recently transcribing his interview, and then he mentioned your name, and I was like, the one thing he pointed out was there's not, I mean, they mentioned like one intravenous use, but what Grunman said, it, it, it doesn't look like people are trying to extract the main alkaloids from Kratom and get it into their system faster through like snorting or injection. And that's kind of a sign. Is, is that a sign? And, um, and then also mentioned, uh, I think one of your studies mentioned the same thing with buprenorphine. There's not a lot of, uh, uh, converting that into an injection IV. Buprenorphine. That was a little bit easier. And so there are ways to do, so buprenorphine is a, a separate one and it's something diverted buprenorphine is something I'm interested in as mm-hmm. well. Um, and have an, another study on because it's, it's just interesting, but um, in, with respect to Kratom. So yeah, it's, I believe that there was one person in my sample that had tried to inject it and maybe one or two that had tried to snort it because they did not know what they were doing yet. And they would just were going to at least try it. Um, and they found out you couldn't really, uh, especially with you know the powder and, and all that. So, um, so no, I mean, the, the routes of administration are almost all oral. There's, I've, you know, it's everything is converged on that being the route of administration. It's mm-hmm. just a matter of, you know, what type, you know, and at what dose. And that's about the, those are the questions that we're, I mean, now that we know, you know, what we're talking about, because at first everyone was just confused. What is Kratom? What is Kratom? Now that we know increasingly kind of what it is, um, you know, everything's converging on, you know, a few different kinds of, you know, types of, of preparations um, and, and several different kinds of ways of dosing. But you know, as far as the 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 risk of, well, I mean, I don't know if you had a specific question other than if you're getting at risk. Does it indicate that people were trying to use uh, even there's like a subset of uh, diverted buprenorphine users that just use, I guess, the strips or whatever? And um, does it mean they're try- they're using it to self treat rather than? to get high like to heal rather than to get high are they trying it does it indicate that with kratom and some even some diverted buprenorphine that since they're not trying to get the strongest possible doses that they're trying to heal from it yeah so for both so going to kratom first it's it's increasingly clear based on my research and the other literature that most people are taking it for very pragmatic reasons. This has been borne out in the survey literature, including work I've done, you know, with Hopkins, so Al Garcia Romeo um, and the Hopkins group. Um, Marion Co. has another large survey. There are several like really large surveys that have come after Oliver Grunman's, and you know we're seeing that people are using it for very specific reasons, and that the majority of those reasons do not include trying to just get this euphoric high that's you know that quote-unquote high that said there are people who we you know who do report using kratom to improve their mood enhance you know energy to you know feel a recreational euphoria so it's not as though that's absent from the entire kratom using population but we're talking about a very large and diverse group of people and you know, people can have more than one reason to do something. Mm-hmm. So people can, 
and we, I mean, this is very clear from the work. People might report using it to reduce anxiety, but also to improve mood and energy and to feel good. I mean, some of the Reddit data that are going to be published very soon get at what some of the survey literature really couldn't get at, at least not at first, which is that, you know, most people are using it just to like be a better human. <laughs> like, like the takeaway message is, um, you know, I don't feel good. And whether it's because of pain or because I am socially anxious or because yeah. I have ADHD or because I want to, you know, be, you know, have like more stamina, um, or because I have chronic fatigue. I mean, there's so many, just so many different reasons, including I don't want to be on heroin anymore. I want to use this instead of heroin. Um, that most people are not using it to achieve this kind of like high per se, more than just, I want to function. I want to live my daily life and go do what I need to do. And I think that buprenorphine, um, for some is the same. And we know from the diverted buprenorphine literature that most people who are using diverted buprenorphine are using it because they need treatment and they are not getting it or because they're in withdrawal and they're trying to self-treat withdrawal. Um, you know, the, the, the short version of the diverted buprenorphine story is, is really just a treatment gap. Like we have people who are struggling to kind of you know, manage their opioid use disorder and they're not getting engaged with systems of care. And so they're using it either as a stopgap so they can kind of, you know, reset or they're using it to try to um, get off of heroin. The one exception I would say, and this does get back to, to Appalachia, is that, you know, we have seen at least clinically and I don't know how many case reports have documented this. Um, you know, there are at least in some areas where, and this gets back to rural Appalachia, um, you know, prescription opioid prescribing has, has changed and it's more, you know, more expensive to obtain um, illicit prescription opioids. And so some people are using diverted buprenorphine before they've ever even used any, any other opioid. That's mm. the first opioid drug that they ever do, which is very interesting. And again, I would say that's a very, you know, it's a minority, um, but again, it shows that there's a, this treatment gap of just getting, getting people engaged with care. And likewise with Kratom, it seems that a lot of people just wanna be able to um, take Kratom for a very specific reason, and kind of go about their day. And, and I think you noted um, from the, the 2019 paper, you know, no one really, at least among that sample, and I should say that the, that, that small sample is somewhat different than the, you know, Oliver Grunman's sample or the subsequent, subsequent large studies that, um, like the one I helped with, with um, Dr. Albert, you know, Garcia Romeo, mm -hmm. um, you know, these were really, these are people who had been in treatment a lot. They were poly drug using adults who had a very extensive history. And to me, that makes them the best sample to ask this question of, you know, do you prefer Kratom to other drugs? And the vast majority did not. And that is saying something. And it goes back to the first client that I met who was describing feeling better, but not getting high. Um, so I think that that's something that we need to keep in mind as, as we 
we move forward and ask more questions is just drilling down um, to greater specificity about what are you using for and why, and is it working? And there's, it seems like there's kind of a moral implications in getting high uh, versus uh uh, treating something, but I mean, people have a couple of drinks as a social social lubrication, but you could also call that self treating for mild social anxiety. Um, do you, I mean, do you see it like that? Like it's kind of, I mean, like recreational use is kind of a loaded word when I people are using for, using drugs for some reason. Well, I mean, I don't have an opinion on it. I can yeah. only speak as a scientist and just say that it is a phenomenon that's existed since the dawn of man met psychoactive botanical number one back however eons ago. Um, so we just know that this is what people do. I drink coffee every morning. Um, and I, I think that what, you know, what we're seeing with cannabis, Kratom, a lot of other things is just that people, um, you know, people are using for different reasons. And the one thing that we know for sure is that, you know, there's there's a really big difference between substance use, substance misuse, and addiction. And I think that we we do best we do our best work when we keep in mind that there is not just people who are addicted, people who are trying to get high and misuse drugs, and people who are. I mean, you know, to your point, there there are there's controlled use, um, and there's a lot of um, you know qualitative ethnographic work. Cocaine changes is a really good book. Drug Set and Setting uh, by Zinberg is a really good book that are, you know, that get at um, and document that people can use drugs like heroin or cocaine and then learn to moderate use um, or stop use um, or continue in, in some kind of pattern. I, don't, I think Kratom is no exception to that. And I, I was, I had a question about like, what do you think causes a, addiction in the first place? You had a um, comment on that's a whole other podcast series. <laughs> oh man, sorry. Yeah, I mean, you had a comment on uh, Haley at all the centrality of the brain and the fuzzy line of addiction. Um, so my just basic question is: Do you think addiction is like a brain disease? And if so, does that come all through genetics, or does it happen through uh, like conditioning, like uh, childhood trauma? So yeah, and I, I apologize, I interrupted you, but the question you just asked me could be it's an own podcast series yeah. <laughs> that we go because there's a lot to say on that. And the very short, to, I'll, I'll go with the easy one first. Yes, we know that genetics play a role in not you know in gravitating towards um, trying drugs or um, liking certain drugs more than others. Um, you know, but that's not saying much, right? So genes are involved in everything. So to say that genes are involved in this is kind of like, well, no kidding. So um, yeah, okay. it gets back to probability, right? So um, increasingly what we'll be able to do, and I don't say me myself, but scientists will be able to, um, you know, understand the human genome better and understand, you know, what genetic factors are associated with increased likelihoods for certain outcomes, including drug use or addiction, right? So that, and that has a lot to do with the environment. So some genes um, are not even activated or they're not expressed um, unless certain environmental conditions occur. So the gene environment um, interaction 
is of course extremely complex and childhood development and neurobiological development, uh, particularly between in utero and say age six and then even age 14 has a lot to do with how people end up as adults. That said, people are dynamic, brains are dynamic. Um, and as far as considering addiction or brain disease, or let's say, you know, looking at it from a behavioral economic standpoint as more of this um, maladaptive learning or disorder of choice, which is instantiated in the brain, you know, just like anything else. Um, it's kind of a semantic thing. We, you know, the easy and shorter answer to the question is to say that you know, there are two camps within addiction science, at least the people that, that care about this aspect of it, those that consider it to be a chronic brain disease and those that consider it to be this maladaptive kind of disorder of choice, for lack of a better term. And they're, they're both pretty much overlapping and in agreement about most things, and they wouldn't disagree about most facts. So it's more of a framing and a theoretical um, orientation that would kind of drive one camp to be one way and one camp to be another way, even though they agree on like most things. I myself, um, you know, I don't per personally like the brain disease model um, as, as what I would choose to conceptualize addiction as, even though, again, I can't disagree with most things. Um, so Marcus Heilig, who wrote that paper, I agree with the vast majority of what he said. It's just a few little things that um, are important points of departure that I still think that as a scientific discipline, we're having to reconcile and and kind of come to terms with. But, um, but you know, everything does happen in the brain. And so we can at least agree on that much. Um, so, you know, a longer answer to your question would take about a year and I could believe me, I could talk for it about a year. Um, so the short answer is is just more of a, um, we need to take a, a more biopsychosocial model yeah. um, of addiction because we are brains and environments at the end of the day, so. Is there actually more addiction in uh, communities of poverty um, do, or is it just because people in poverty have less access to medical care to treat their addiction? Maybe, you know, there's like a bigger risk of, of being having some kind of substance use disorder um, or is, is is the does the rural part play a factor because I look at a lot of um, I had uh, Dr. Singh on here and he was talking about how you know there's just not medical care uh, in rural areas in, in Malaysia do those things have a have a uh, direct effect on on uh, the risk of uh, problem drug use or addiction the short answer is yes so poverty um is, is positively cor correlated with increased likelihood of using drugs and then developing substance use disorder. And a lot of that has to do with, um, I know, there's a term you might wanna look up, it's called social determinants of health. And we see this not just for substance use disorder, but for many, many health behaviors um, or just behaviors um, as well as things like, you know, so um, people's weight or um, mental health or, um, 
you know, even, in, you know, increased likelihood for certain um, types of early morbidities. And, you know, a lot of it is associated with um, scarcity. So whether it's resource scarcity as in money or information um, or access to treatment or access to just knowledge in advance, or just access to stable um, developmental environments that are enriched uh, rather than um, impoverished in like a, a literal sense of the word of just not having enough stimulation um, during you know you know early childhood development. So there's a lot of factors that that go into it. It's again very complex, but we do see that people who are in harsh and resource poor conditions. Um, are, you know, or who have significant childhood trauma and stress, um, you know, do have a higher likelihood of using drugs and developing a substance use disorder, particularly if they start using before the age of, you know, 13 or 14. And, um, you know, so I think that it's, it's a, it's a two-sided problem. One, it's an increased risk. And then also it's harder to get help, you know, if you're, you know, if you're lower socioeconomic status, um, after the fact. And I think that it could go, you know, we see this in both highly rural and highly urban areas. So mm -hmm. I would say the extremes of, of different types of, um, you know, you know, living um, also, and also kind of tie into the poverty narrative as well. Um, I guess you had talked about um, stuff that you're working on now or uh, re or any research that you can talk about uh, on Kratom specifically. We're really excited that um, we have several studies. I mentioned, a, well, a survey study, we used Amazon Mechanical Turk um, and had a large crowdsourced um, online survey study that was for a larger project, but we, you know, I put in Kratom questions. And then what we did was um, recontact and follow up with a subset of people who, you know, we could get a hold of basically. And so now we have really, really, really pristine data on Kratom from people who are not just regular users, but people who have also quit or decreased use or increased use. So we have a much more, it's a smaller, but it's a much more diverse sample than we've had before. And we're going to be using that to inform a lot of, um, or not a lot, but some of um, the next study that we're gearing up to do, which is going to be um, probably launching in the fall. And that is something I'm working on getting put together now. So um, it, basically, we're going to, instead of doing a survey again, which again, we, we need to keep doing surveys, um, but we're going to do a national um two-week long study where we enroll people who um, regularly use Kratom, so basically three or more times per week, and then they will do what's called ecological and momentary assessment. And all that is is a fancy way of saying that we want to take a little snapshots of data, um, self-reported. We're not going to be collecting like GPS or anything like that, uh, just self-reported data um, about you know how they're feeling at different times of day, when they're using Kratom, what they're feeling. And so we kind of triangulate, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of data points by sampling, you know, several hundred people, but across a two week period. So a person, instead of responding to what's called like a cross-sectional survey where they just do it one time, they'll be answering little mini questions at random times and, you know, over two weeks. And then, um, We'll be analyzing Kratom product samples from those people. 
Um, this is a partnership with the University of Florida and Johns Hopkins University. For a very small subset, we're going to have a few people come in to NIDA um, where I work and then also provide us some biospecimens. <laughs> we're going to get some urine and blood and analyze, you know, what the plasma looks like um, and what the metabolites are, um, you know, from from them and also get a sample of the kratom product they're using. So That's it's great. in some ways a small study, but in another in other ways, it's a kind of big step forward um, to then doing more controlled laboratory based work, which is what I plan to do next, which is actually bringing people in and putting them in controlled environments and monitoring um, different things based, you know, that we don't need to go down yet, but um, that will be kind of the next phase is much more rigorous um, human work that will build to clinical trials, hopefully. That's great. And I'm glad the the, the actual kratom is uh, being sampled because I mean, just what we found, I mean, what people found, they say the greens do this, the reds do this. I had some from this other company that's completely different. Uh, and, and so I think it's it's going to help because it has such a, such a complex alkaloid profile that it, and it hits so many different, the, the, you know, brain receptors that it's, it, I think it's going to help a lot to, to get an actual, what they're actually taking and then what's going on with them and i can't wait to see that one that's gonna be awesome that'll probably take a while huh well actually no i mean it, yeah. it depends we're hoping that recruitment you know it's really the participation in the study is probably about 15 days total and yeah. so and people can do it from their smartphone so they don't have to come in um and do it so it, it actually might i mean well i should say that your your sense of time and my sense of time might be different so because science moves um, very slowly, um, you know, we expect that data collection should not take more than a year to complete. And given the American Kratom Association and some vendors are going to be helping um, once we have IRB approved um, study recruiting materials, we'll be putting those out. Um, I might bug you as well um, and have you oh, put yeah. some out. Um, once the IRB has approved all of our recruiting methods, we're actually not sure if we should expect like a, a deluge of like, you know, way too many people all at once wanting to do the study or if it's going to take longer. It is a compensated study. We do pay people to participate in this because it is more rigorous than a survey. So we're not sure what to expect with with that. But um, we do know that a lot of people who use Kratom have been very happy to do research in the past. So we, we are hoping that we'll have good recruitment. Thank you very much, Dr. Kirsten Smith. Please like, subscribe, share, rate, review, and check us out on Twitter at Kratom Science. We'll be posting uh, Dr. Smith's upcoming studies along with any other Kratom study. The music is Risey. The song is Memories of Thailand. The Kratom Science podcast is written and produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. Take care.